WHMP. And good afternoon, and thank you so much for joining us on this day after the election. Hey, Dan. What is happening, Buzz? How you feeling? How are you feeling after that night? I'm actually a little tired. Um, so you were counting ballots. I was. We were counting ballots until I think about 11 o'clock last night. We started counting at 8. Um, everything reconciled. The exact number of people who came in actually put a ballot in the ballot box. It got cranked in. <laughs> the bell went off. The counter brought it up, and then they checked out, and they all reconciled with the number of ballots that we had. And 68% uh, exactly of Ashfield's registered voters voted last night, which was really fabulous. And they voted the way I hoped that they would vote, uh, which is really super fabulous. And um, that, was, that was good. Here in Massachusetts, I'm quite pleased with how things turned out. We, uh, you can hear the sound of a glass ceiling shattering all around us with five statewide uh, positions being held by women. Only our Secretary of State uh, identifies the male. And, and um, we had valid questions. Question three um, did not pass, but uh, one, which is near and dear to a lot of our hearts. Question two, uh, dental insurance companies have to uh, act like all insurance companies do in Massachusetts. And question four, to make our roads safer and make life uh, easier for immigrant uh, uh, immigrants and their families to actually work and travel. It passed. And in the first Hampshire and first Franklin, question five about the carbon fee passed as well, indicating it's non-binding, but telling our legislators that we want them to do such a thing. So I'm quite happy about that. Um, and with us, again, we're so lucky, <laughs> is Bruce Miller, Professor Miller. Hello. Hey, Buzz. Hey, Dan. And so let me start with, uh, actually, let me start with Dan. How do you feel about what happened nationally? Ooh. Uh, well, I, I can say I was pretty excited and pretty happy because the expectation leading up to last night was the Republicans were going to sweep and it was going to be a huge victory. They were looking a at this at twenty as a red wave. Everybody talked about a pollsters numbers. If you believed in polls, you were believing Tuesday was going to be a rough night for the Democrats. And it might turn out that the Republicans take the House of Representatives, but their majority will look very similar to the Democratic majority. So I was it taught me a lesson. And the lesson is don't trust polls under certain conditions things change and the variables changed. And I think it's the Dobbs decision, right? Had an impact. I mean, how to model undoing, something that, undoing row. row after 50 years that played into last night. Um, and there were a lot of other facts. I mean, the economy, everybody talks about inflation, but there are other variables in the economy that are, that are tend to favor the Democrats, low unemployment, right? There are other variables, right? Reopening the economy. They, they must have gotten some of the credit for that. So they get they get the blame for not fixing inflation, but they do get credit for, okay, the stock market hasn't collapsed and all these things. It was kind of, you know, mediocre, but it, it did cause the Republicans to step back and say, okay, maybe people aren't into that agenda that we have discussed here previously, uh, that, you know, maybe the Trump wing of the Republican Party were pushing. Maybe they pushed back and some people were like, look, we might not love the Democrats, but we don't want what you're offering. 
Yeah, and apparently he and he Trump endorsed three hundred and thirty candidates, and not too many of them won. Yeah, Bruce Miller, you came um, on Monday. We had a wonderful conversation with you, where you were talking about a New York Times um, opinion column by Ezra Klein, which was uh, sort of uh, fantasizing about what life would look like with the Republican Congress. So. How are you feeling today on that theme? Well, on that theme, uh, I'm, I must say I, I agree a lot with what, what everything Dan just said. I, I felt uh, an enormous sense of relief. I don't think by any means that we're out of the woods with respect to the questions that Klein raised, uh, which, which is to imagine a, a party that uh, views power as just the opportunity to annihilate their opponents. I do think we're going to have an early test because it, it's so close for control of the Senate. And we've got these two races in, that are still uncalled in, in Nevada and Arizona. Arizona's one that the Republicans were counting on winning. If, well, Kelly's, uh, I think he's up by like, isn't he up by like... Close five? to 100,000. Kel- Kelly's, Kelly's up significantly. Uh, when, if that gets called for Kelly, what, what will the MAGA people do? But then well, we are going to have a runoff in Georgia, right? Definitely going to have a runoff in Georgia. At least it seems mathematically impossible to avoid that yeah. at this point. Um, the, the Republicans are in an odd position because they'd like to stop the counting in Nevada because uh, uh, they're, they're guys ahead there. And, and, of course, they desperately need all the counting in the world to happen uh, in Arizona. Uh, what attitude will the, the Trump wing of the Republican Party take towards the outcomes in those two states if they're not favorable to them? Will we see the kind of attack on, on the vote that we saw in 2020, and will we not? And then, assuming that the Republicans indeed do take the House, which looks very likely at this point, um, McCarthy is going to be in a heck of a position as the Speaker. Because uh, on the one hand, he's going to have a very, very narrow majority. Um, on the other hand, that majority, such as it is, is going to be deeply dependent on vote deniers. At least 150 of the Republicans elected are on record as saying Trump's the legitimate president, the vote was illegitimate, or, or both. Uh, can he do anything without their acquiescence, including can he get elected speaker without their acquiescence? What promises does he have to make to them? In other words, will we see the investigations, the impeachments, uh, because McCarthy doesn't have any choice? All of that still could be in front of us, but we Well, really he's already promised that he's going to look really hard at the committee assignments for people like Adam Schiff. Yeah. That's a quote. Yeah. From him, yeah. Um, just wait, wait he's looking for well, for he what about Adam Schiff. The fact that uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and others lost yeah. their committee assignments. Oh yes. yeah, yeah. So he, yeah. there's going to be it's right. it's going to be a revenge tour. Oh, I yeah. see. Yeah. Okay, yeah. at um, least it, it, that still looks reasonable. Hunter Biden like, investigations yeah. and uh, you uh, know on the, on the other impeach hand, Biden. Right. You know, he, if 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 the Republican Party. Uh, is capable of taking even a very intermediate instead of just an sh- extreme short-term view, they've got to be noticing the results of all of the propositions in the, in the various states. Everything concerning abortion rights went in favor of abortion rights. Even in states like Kentucky? And Montana. 
And, and you know, there's, there's simply no denying the fact that the American people on the whole deeply respect abortion rights as political rights essential to women's citizenship. Uh, are they going to ignore that? I don't know the answer to that. Let me ask you both a question. Uh, I'll start with you, Bruce. Um, while I am deploring already, you know, Carrie Lake is not going to accept her. She's going to say that, right. you know, it's a product of some uh, manufactured shenanigans in, in the electoral process. Um, I, I look at these results, and when the Republicans do take however narrow a, a uh, majority in the House and perhaps the Senate, I can't, help, I can't forget all those millions who were uh, stripped of their registration and thereby couldn't vote— I can't forget the redistricting with these gerrymandered, you know, little worms of, of shaped districts um, throughout Texas and Kentucky and so many other states. Alabama, the Supreme Court is going to countenance that one. I can't forget that stuff. Yeah. yeah. The Democrats hold the House for sure without the gerrymanders uh, that resulted from the 2020 census. Right. So uh, I, even under the seats as they as they were set between 2010 and 2020, the, the Democrats hold the House. And we have the uh, irony that the one area where a pro-Democrat gerrymander was stopped is, is New York, where the New York Court of Appeals said, Dems, uh, if gerrymandering is bad, you can't do it either. So we have one state in which a, a state court, as in my view, it should have, stopped a, a, a gerrymander. But of course, we've got one, a one-way street on playing by those kinds of rules. And here in Massachusetts, when Paul Mark was the chair of the redistricting joint committee, um, I had him on several times. I talked to him. I had him come and talk to my class at one point. And he was saying that we are committed to not doing it here in Massachusetts, even though we have an overwhelming Democratic yep. uh, legislature um, it, it is just wrong to do it. So yeah. we're, we're seeking ways, models, for having no uh, malfeasance yeah. and no yeah. shenanigans in the way we draw districts. And I believe him. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry, Buzz, what was your question for me? Oh, you're, well, I, that was a long time ago, Dan. I know, yeah. I know. Did you? That's because I'm you sorry. asked it to me first. <laughs> yeah. Have trouble getting me to stop. No, no, I just wasn't, I was on the computer. Well, no, I think I was talking about the fact that I can't um, get uh, sort of um, nefarious uh, redistricting, knocking people off the registration rolls, um, uh, putting aside people with ski masks and and, uh, automatic weapons at drop boxes, you know, uh, only approaching African Americans and things like that. But um, I just can't get it out of my mind that... it's still, uh, listen to me, it wasn't a fair election. It, it, Democrats would have won if every person in this country had a vote. Mm. Well, I, in a, I was thinking about uh, Joe Biden's uh, uh, final days before the election, where he had think he was making the appeal about the risk to democracy, and he's like, democracy is on the ballot, and I don't know how effective it is, but if after last night you start thinking, well, Maybe he was onto something or convinced enough people. Maybe this sort of conversation about fear of ballots, voting, you know, playing by the rules, maybe got some people to come out there and vote for 
the the Democrats in unexpected races where people expected the Republicans to more easily win. I mean, we talked about this on Monday. It's really hard for the president for a, a president to win and then two years later to keep the House and the Senate. Right. It, it, for George W. Bush, it, it was successful in 2002. That's a year after 9-11. And then Bill Clinton in 98. Right. I believe that's correct. That's right. Those, those are the two times. It's oftentimes it goes against. So you have to look as a Republican to look at, say, wait a minute, why wasn't it more forceful? Like this was a tiny red wave you know this was this is minuscule if it really turns out maybe between three to seven votes compared to where they were the expectations was much higher now here's the concern uh that i just want to bring up uh for the conservative movement and this has happened to a place like canada in 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 a few decades ago conservative movements sometimes break up they split themselves and have a feud. And when that happens, especially in a country with two parties, they'll be out of power for a long time until that dis- until that feud comes together and coalesces. Do you think that's what's happening now, Bruce? I think it's about to happen in the Republican Party. Yeah, the conservative party in Canada dissolved completely for a while because it came asunder in that kind of a dispute. It was a very, very bad night last night for Donald Trump because he placed himself in the middle of this election. Um, and made it, as he does about everything, to the best of his ability, about him. And he's got to own that now. And, of course, the big exception to the bad night for the Republicans was in Florida. Yeah, Florida. Where, where yeah. Ron, Ron DeSantis has now established himself as uh, really the avatar of Trumpism. And, bad night for Trump, but not necessarily and, for and Trumpism. And the only other spot that I think the, the Trump wing did well in was Ohio. And that was yes. a little surprising because yeah. I think people expected uh, Tim Ryan, Ryan was going to win. Right, oh, right. win that. He had kind of done yeah. this moderation uh, uh, tactic right. and it, it thought it works. But J.D. Vance. Yeah. Uh, pretty, pretty well obliterated him. Yeah. Seven, yeah. seven point gap. Seven point gap was, uh, was bigger it, than you, expected. You know, the Democratic National Committee, I don't know if this would have helped, uh, wrote Ryan off. Mm. Um, and he, he really got no national money. Mm. Uh, and and that, that, no, that no doubt hurt him, hurt yeah, him no some. Doubt kept him uh, some. But, but 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 still Ohio Ohio is a different state now. It is a different state. But Florida is the one that worries me because that used yeah. to be competitive. Yep. And DeSantis won that, but barely but against now, a really good opponent in yeah. Val Demings. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, well, well this time, no, no. Before right. he won it just barely. Val Demings was a formidable candidate, and and the margin was was extraordinary for DeSantis. Yeah. At this point, DeSantis is not going to stand down. But everything that yeah. I said before about the way districts are drawn in Florida, about, you know, the, the way uh, people, it's just like cheating. A lot, of vote, a lot of vote suppression in Florida. Yeah, Absolutely. and people are looking at this, you know, whatever it was, right. a 15-point win that's, or whatever it was, and, and yeah. saying, oh, my God, he really, well, I'm not yeah. quite sure if we really counted hands. Yeah. How no, would it wouldn't. It margin margin would not would not be be that be, be that great. But but we we we're we're living in a world and have been in a long time for a long time, in in which vote suppression and gerrymandering are part of the game. Well, aren't I lucky to be in a room right here with Dan Torres and with um, Bruce Miller, um, both of whom have uh, a really clear um, understanding of what is befuddling me. I want goodness to win, and I don't understand why it isn't. But I'm going to uh, think about that. I'm just going to work it over in my mouth and 
see how it tastes uh, while we take a break, and we're going to come back with Bruce Miller and Dan Torres and talk more election, post-election, right after this. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. We live in a political world. Wisdom is thrown in the jail. It rots in a cell. It's got it. How are activists in Northampton about to honor local progressive role models? Please join us when we speak with Sajali Elliott Fratkin and Betsy Speeder as our community is about to honor the legendary Francis Crow, passionate activist Marty Nathan, and the founder of the National Priorities Project, Greg Speeder. We'll hear about the vision and the plans beginning Thursday at 9 o'clock. Bill Newman, weekdays at 9 and again at 5. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. Every day, financial ads claiming to be different from the competition. Are they? I'm Francis Rayum, the money doctor, and I'm about to make a bold statement. I believe the thing to focus on isn't their uniqueness, it's yours. No one has the same financial situation or needs as you, and no one can help us help you better than you. But the truth is, when it comes to managing money, most of us are not as successful as we'd like to be. No matter how focused we are, it's almost impossible to separate emotion, and being in a relationship can further compound the issue. That's why I developed Hug Your Money. Financial coaching, coupled with online software and tools to empower you to manage money wisely. We guide you every step of the way to resolve immediate issues and plan for your financial future with modeling scenarios. So whether it's debt, budget, retirement planning, or a financial crisis, having a Hug Coach in your corner is like having a new best financial friend. Hug Your Money is as unique as you are. In fact, it's patented. Visit HugYourMoney.com. Part of what I love about being a therapist in community mental health is really getting to know people who are from really different backgrounds, including serving people who are the most vulnerable. Dan is a therapist at ServiceNet. There's a culture of thinking more deeply about the work we're doing. And for me, when I do that, that feels really good. If you're a licensed mental health clinician who wants to make your own hours while also being part of a progressive community mental health team, join us at ServiceNet. Go to the employment page at servicenet.org. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And we are doing a post-election sort of wrap-up, just sort of musing about uh, what we learned from yesterday. And I have a question. Let me start with you, Dan Torres, Uh before we turn to Bruce Miller, which is, let's make an assumption. Ezra Klein's vision that we spoke of Monday about uh, Congress going red. In however small the margin, if Congress goes red, those of us who really care, the activists that there are so many of here in the Valley, what, would, what should they be spending the next two years doing? How can they combat what horrors we're about to see? Um, well, they could start locally, and I don't just mean in Massachusetts, but start seeing, okay, are there vulnerable Republicans in New England that you could start uh, targeting in 2024. I mean, that's one strategy. I'm thinking nationally here, not just locally. But could you figure out a way to to start organizing voters, re-registering voters maybe that have been removed from, from voter rolls and give yourself a chance two years later to create a, a bigger Democratic uh, majority than you had in 2020, which was, uh, what, five? Uh, the majority was five uh, 
yep. Congress people. So, so let's let's try New York, upstate New York. Go out, organize Republicans in upstate New York. It's not that far from here. You know, you want to talk local? What is it? Three hours west. <laughs> just keep going. You go go to those rural areas, not just New York City. We get that we can win in New York City. Hopefully, Democrats are winning New York City. But go to upstate and figure out what you can do in upstate. Good Plus, a, a lot of the election deniers who, who are going to take seats in January, uh, probably at least 150, more like 160 of the Republicans are election deniers. They're going to be inclined to act on that because that's what their base elected them to do. They have to be seen. They have to be. They have to see that they're going to pay a price if they do that. And many of them won close elections, particularly in places like upstate New York. We may see some in California. How do you uh, convince them that there's a price to be paid? Local organizing is exactly right, as Dan said. And and I th- I think when when symbolic events happen, like for example, the January sixth investigating committee is going to be abolished, no matter how narrow the margin is. Um, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a pain in the ass, but there's got to be demonstrations when that happens uh, in the name of the rule of law and in the name of accountability for people who not only denied an election, but, but, but tried to destroy the republic. We've got a grand marshal right here, Bruce Miller. <laughs> You know, and, and I'm so still, um, I just scratch my head. Um, they have it both ways. If they win, they win. And if they lose, they say that they won and it was stolen from them. And I don't know what percentage, but, but at somewhere between a quarter and a third yep. of the popular, the, the registered voters in this country believe that they're telling the truth with yep. no evidence. It's very frightening. If we have a round two of that growing out of Nevada and or Arizona. Um, we'll see how it works. We'll see what Karen kind Lake of a take it has. has already said that she's she, not going to accept it. assuming she will. Yeah. What, what kind of success will she have? I don't, just, I don't mean in the courts because I don't think she'll have much. But what kind of success politically on a national level will she have? What, what will DeSantis, the rising star, have to say about, about this? Uh, what happens in the in the in the Georgia runoff where where Walker is going to have to take a position on all of this? Um, it we can test it at every turn as long as they continue to try to act on it. Um, and and I actually think there's a chance uh, that they might be somewhat chastened already by the outcomes. Uh, uh, the bad outcomes that they achieved uh, y- yesterday in terms of what their expectations were anyway. Mm. Oh, but that were true. I'm not at all sure that, that I mean, they should feel that way. Yeah. They should be concerned, but they, um, if January 6th didn't make the, hours after they were chased out of their building, threat of personal harm yep. to them and their families yep. and their colleagues, the 130 of them voted not to it's, certify it's, the election. It's because they didn't see a price to be paid uh, if, they, if they did what they did, and they saw a price to be paid if they were honest. That's a good point. Has it changed? Has Trump's failure yesterday, relatively speaking, changed that calculus? We'll see quickly. What's McCarthy going to do uh, under this pressure? I mean, they, he has to calculate the risk that if you go and uh, support Trump and maybe the more extreme elements of the Republican Party, 
Are you going to pay a price for it in the polls two years later? Not him personally, maybe not in Bakersfield in, in California, but is the rest of his party. Then it's like, okay, the Democrats were in power for four years. We could barely hold on for two years and barely had a majority, barely able to do anything. What was almost the point? You know, it's the way they, they have to look at it. So he has to figure well, out the way they might look balance. at it. I mean, yeah. you started today, Dan, saying there's the Roe decision. You, you yeah. pointed to a number of possible yeah. reasons that in the minds of the Republican leadership, they might not have done as well as the red wave predictions indicated mm-hmm. they were going to. So I'm not sure whether they're going to see a direct line between, oh, the big lie caught us, cost us this election. I, I hope. Um, what do you think, Dan? It's much clearer that uh, it was abortion rights that cost them this, this, this election. If I were more religiously inclined than I am, I, I, I'd be inclined to, to, to track uh, something Ben Franklin said, uh, although in a different context, and, and, and that is uh, the results of these referendums and initiatives on abortion rights are, are proof not only that God exists, but that she is pro-choice. <laughs> and and I, think, I think that was the key to the election. I love that. I'll try to remember that. Because I, I have loved row, row, row your vote. Yeah. That's been one of my faves this election season. Listen, um, things are not as bad as, as was predicted here in Massachusetts. We live in an island. And I'm so grateful that, uh, and, and that our neighbor is Vermont, right? But as you both said, there's going to be a lot of work to do in our neighboring states, New Hampshire, New York, um, and we should get to work and roll up our sleeves and make sure that 2024 goes better. Dan? You can also reach out to voters that uh, haven't voted, right? Get them to vote. Apparently, it's a, it's a good strategy to write them letters. Get people registered. Oh, get people registered or just write them handwritten letters saying the importance of voting, why it's important to them. That apparently has uh, an effect. Interesting. Unless you have my handwriting. (laughs) Or mine. (laughs) Bruce Miller, I so love talking to you about law and government. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Thanks for having me. Okay. Dan, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to have Nan Parati, and she's going to be talking to a psychologist, Carter Carter, about, well, kids, our future. We'll be right back. Now the latest from WHMP, I'm Monty Belmonte, in for Jess Tyler. A constitutional amendment which will tax Massachusetts' wealthiest residents passed in Tuesday's election. The constitutional amendment, commonly referred to as either the Fair Share Amendment or the Millionaire's Tax, will place a 4% surtax on all income over $1 million per year. Revenues from the tax will be put toward transportation and education projects by constitutional amendment. The vote margin remained tight throughout election night and into the following day. The Associated Press called the race at 1.24 p.m. Wednesday with nearly 95% of the vote counted. Massachusetts voters have chosen not to repeal a new law allowing immigrants in the country to obtain driver's licenses regardless of their immigration status. The measure became law after the Democratic-controlled Massachusetts House and Senate overrode a veto by Republican Governor Charlie Baker in June. Under the new law, those in the country without immigration documentation will be able to apply for a driver's license from the state if they can provide the Registry of Motor Vehicles with a foreign passport or consular identification document. The new law is set to take effect July 1, 2023. Massachusetts joins 16 other states and the District of Columbia that have similar laws. 
with 95% of the votes counted. Question two on dental insurance medical loss rations has passed by a wide margin, but ballot question three on the limit on alcoholic beverage licenses looks as if it has failed to pass. For tonight, mostly clear, overnight lows 30 to 34. For Thursday, it'll be mostly sunny and milder, highs 60 to 64. And the out Friday, mostly cloudy rain in the afternoon, highs in the upper 60s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. 101.5, 1400 and 1240 WHMP. What's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Hearing the verdict and hearing the words racial animus were extremely painful for certainly for myself and for the women and men of the Greenfield Police Department who really do go to work every day to serve the people of Greenfield. 1015, 1400 and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Happy talk, keep talking, happy talk. Talk about things you'd like to do. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. So, thanks so much for everybody being here today. I'm Nan Parati, and I've got, again, a most interesting thing. And my interesting thing today is my friend Carter J. Carter. Carter, we've, oh, let me just say this first. We've been talking with young people. We've been, we've been talking about what it's like to be young these days. What are the things that affect people that maybe didn't affect my generation because I'm grown and you're mm-hmm. young, Carter. Am I young? I'm 34. You're 34. You're young. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah, wait. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> so we've been talking about this for the last few weeks, talking with a lot of young people. Mm-hmm. And now we have you, a real-life professor mm-hmm. of... Tell me exactly what you do. So uh, I have a few jobs. I'm an assistant professor of clinical psychology at the Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts in North Adams. Uh, I'm also on the faculty at the doctorate in social work program at the University of Pennsylvania, and I'm in part-time private psychotherapy practice. But you work with young people, right? Yeah. So my for many years, my practice was based in Amherst. So I was seeing a lot of folks in the five colleges, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of young people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And so I'm feeling like, so we've been talking to the kids mm-hmm. and we've talked to a parent mm-hmm. and now we're going to talk to the professional. Okay. Yeah. So what are your thoughts? What, what do you get from your everyday work with, with people? What are you hearing? What are you feeling? The level of agony that I encounter in young people on a day-to-day basis is profound to the point of being kind of shocking. Really? You know, uh, I think people misunderstand mental health problems simply as a form of illness, right? As a kind of inborn phenomenon where there's something wrong with your brain, you've got a chemical imbalance. What I can tell you is that that's almost never the whole story. Mm -hmm. Um, Indeed, in many instances, it's not actually a particularly accurate version of the story. Rather, uh, human beings tend to get mentally distressed beyond the bounds of what's normal when we're dealing with a stressor that we weren't evolved to deal with. Uh So uh, our nervous system, our minds, they, I should say our brains really, they evolved to deal with brief stressors that resolve either by you dying or by you being okay. Right. That's the nervous system we have. Uh Um, Those are not the problems that we live with. Right. Typically, the problems that we live with are kind of grinding day in and day out, fairly relentless issues with no obvious resolution. Uh Um, And I think young people are often particularly acutely aware of that, both because they see their whole life out in front of them. Uh And it's easy to feel like 
whatever I'm experiencing now is never going to end. But I also think that they're particularly sensitive to uh, existential issues like climate change mm-hmm. uh, and the decline, the rise of fascism right. that terrify them and they don't see anybody doing much about it. Yeah. And, and I think that those sorts of things, climate change in particular, weigh heavily on them to a point that engenders anxiety, profound anxiety, panic, devastating depression, mm-hmm. um, even up to like kind of post, kind of traumatic reactions way beyond what I think many people might appreciate. This is Dan. I got a question for you, Carter. Yeah, of course. Uh, that sounds like something good and something bad because mm-hmm. at the same time you, you want young people to be engaged politically with issues they care deeply about. Mm-hmm. And given that climate change will impact them 10, 20, 30 years down the future is great. Mm-hmm. However, there is a point where it becomes toxic, right? Can you talk a little bit about that? Where's that line? I, I think you're right. And I, and I think the there's the line within an individual person and then there's the line within society writ large, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it, there's a lot of reasons that a person might develop what therapists sometimes call learned helplessness, a sense that regardless of what you do to try to solve a problem, you're probably not going to be successful. You might exhaust yourself and just make yourself make things worse or just wind up back where you started, right? Um I also think that we've built a kind of political situation where that's a pretty accurate assessment of the situation, Mm. right? That, Mm -hmm. you know, the actual ability of an average citizen to make a difference with their vote is pretty limited. And people might be critical of younger people for not voting at the level that one might like to see. But I, I increasingly hear young people being really disenchanted with voting as a solution to their problems because they haven't actually seen it solve any of the things that concern them, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like people voted for Democrats repeatedly and it didn't meaningfully mediate the climate change problem. Oh, mm. uh, yeah. It didn't really matter, right? That isn't to say that we may not accelerate issues when we're under a different kind of administration, right? But it, it's not like that was a panacea. It's not like it even necessarily really helped. See, I keep thinking as younger people grow older, people your age group and, mm-hmm. and a little younger, as they grow older, they've got maybe some more sense <laughs> and that they would then make things work really well. But how do you see that? I mean, do they see empowerment or do they see hopelessness? See, I, I guess... Hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm projecting empowerment upon them, but mm-hmm. am I wrong, do you think? Well, but don't we always sort of do that with whatever the kind of next generation is? We sort of assume, like, oh, they're going to fix it, right? But I think it's very possible that we've made a situation that they can't fix. Oh. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm intrigued by what you said about them feeling like voting mm-hmm. doesn't yeah. make the change that they had hoped, mm-hmm. and they feel like it almost doesn't have agency. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe that your individual vote will matter, but you won't see the results of that vote for a long time. And especially if you're not engaged politically because the political system, the democratic institutions, they make change extremely slow. And so it feels like, oh my God, we have this impending issue in front of us and this system is so slow. But then we could also cite, you know, Joe Biden's recent uh, legislation to mm-hmm. expand uh, 
Green New, you know, the mini Green New Deal expansions of billions of dollars. Had people not voted and gone out there, they wouldn't have made that change possible. Had people in Georgia not elected a 50th Democrat into the Senate, they wouldn't have made that possible. Is anybody saying that back to the young people? You know, you know, I'm I'm loath to speak for all young people or anybody (laughs) else. But from the young people you've talked to, well, you know, uh, what I hear people talking about is we're going to burn. Wow. Uh, that's that's what, what people are projecting. That's what I hear uh-huh. every day. No wonder people are so afraid. Now, is that biased sample size? Is that the ones coming into you feel that way and those who, who don't talk to you? I mean, No, because I hear from my students, too. And, they, oh, okay. and, they and they're not coming. They're just coming to me because they want to take a class. They're not coming to me because of any avowed mental health concern. Right. right. So you hear that across the board. Constantly. Wow. Wow. I also think they're right. I, was, I <laughs> I have a it's friend who frequently <laughs> says, it's a good time to be old, and maybe she's just right. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I don't know if I, I, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I'm sorry. But, but go the, on, guys. But to the point, right, like, whether you necessarily get, take that view, mm-hmm. think about how terrifying that would be. Mm. Yeah, that's true. Right? And think about how unpersuasive most arguments to the contrary would look if you were born after 9-11 and this is the world that, this is the only world that you knew, Mm. right? Mm. Like, it is abjectly terrifying for people. And I think, you know, the, there's, there's a couple of things. Um, There's an idea in the trauma theory literature that I find really valuable called stress pileup. And the idea of stress pileup is that uh, it may not be that any individual adversity that you experience is traumatic in and of itself, Mm. right? But that there's a, if they don't resolve, right, if things aren't made better, Mm. there's a cumulative kind of like (laughs) pileup, that's the term, um, that can on net be profoundly traumatic to people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I sit with folks, obviously I'm not in a position to talk about my patients on the air, but I can say in general terms, like I was sitting with people this morning who are, transgender and afraid to leave their house because they're afraid of what's going to happen to them. I was sitting with people this morning who you know, look at the world and cannot imagine that it's going to be physically survivable by the time that they're old, right? Hmm. Uh, I, look, I sat with people this morning who like are, I, I work with a lot of trans people, so there's a couple of trans examples here, but like, you know, are on the verge of being homeless because they wanted to get top surgery and they're about to get kicked out of the house by their parents, mm-hmm. right? And they can't afford to live mm-hmm. any other way. Right, they had yeah. to they had to cancel their surgery because they couldn't, you know, they weren't going to be safe. I would be intrigued to compare the young people mm-hmm. you're talking about, mm-hmm. go, just going back more to the climate change mm-hmm. issue, and compare that to the young people who were growing up during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Right. And I wonder if that existential crisis had shocked them, and what would be the comparison and differences between those? Go ahead. Nate. As a grown person, I can say, grow, who grew up during that time, we didn't yes. know that much about it. I mean, our parents were dealing with it. Mm-hmm. We, I mean, and me, I was a younger kid, but still, it wasn't something that we heard. You about weren't all underneath the time. your desk. <laughs> exactly. We did do that, but we, it was it was still more like, oh, that's silly, as opposed to mm-hmm. terror. And then maybe it ended too, right? It yeah, felt but, like the fear but also, ended. Yeah, but also the other thing is, like I said, we didn't have social media. We didn't have, we had television, but kids didn't really watch the news that much. So I don't think it was that mm-hmm. kids, Bell's age, the little girl we had on a couple of weeks ago, talking about being 10 years old, mm-hmm. um, you know, she sees every single thing every day, all day on mm-hmm. her phone. We didn't do that. So mm-hmm. I don't think that we had so much the, the, the fear that um, 
that she does. And I think that's catastrophic. Yeah. Right. And I, I can imagine that a listener might hear me using like a lot of what might sound like hyperbolic language, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but consider all the articles that you read in the newspaper about the the weeks and months long waits for young people to get into a psychiatric bed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. It was not always thus. Yeah. Right. We've had some closures of beds, some openings of beds in the Commonwealth, but the the level of need is astronomically spiking. Uh-huh. Right. Uh, I think uh, I work with some of the best college students on the planet at the Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts, but you know I can anecdotally observe that they are really struggling very much at a level that is not necessarily what anybody would have thought to expect. Struggling with what specifically? If you don't mind, just I, in general. Uh, I think. Th- I think they are devastatingly anxious a lot of the time. Uh, I think that they are – that anxiety often kind of curdles into a depression that it's difficult to claw out of. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that those two things taken together often lead people to be – extremely avoidant. Avoidant is kind of the prototypical anxiety trauma response when when you're terrified and feel, you know – not adequate to the task of dealing with the situation, you tend to just ostrich into the sand and then that jams your life up something awful because it has a lot of compounding consequences and it gets into a really vicious cycle and it can really get on top of you. Mm. Um, But there's one other idea. I know that we probably should take a break in a moment, but I want to give you a concept from the attachment theory literature. It's a concept called epistemic trust. Epistemic trust is what we are supposed to develop when we're very small, we're supposed to be able to look at our caregiver and feel like they're an honest broker of the truth, Mm -hmm. that we don't know how to make sense of the world, right? We look to the adults in our life to be like, is this okay? Is this safe? Can I eat this berry? You know, and we have to be able, we entrust our survival to their honesty and accuracy, Right. right? And what you see is in a kind of clinical population, you know, people who are coming in for therapy for serious, you know, mental health problems, it's very common that people did not get that need met, uh-huh. and therefore they're in a kind of constantly hypervigilant state where they don't know what to believe and they're afraid all the time and they uh-huh. don't trust. But, you know, consider like, what if they don't believe you, right, in what you're saying about, well, look at what Biden did with the Green New Deal. I'm not saying I disagree with you necessarily. Sure, sure. But like, what if, what if they just can't regard you as an honest broker of the truth, right? What if the, what if you're looking at the adults in your life and you think, these people are absolutely blinkered, right? Mm-hmm. The, what if you look at the adults in your life and believe in a way that I think is often accurate that this person is also so freaked out by the monumentality of what we've done that they're deluding themselves into thinking that it's fine. Oh, okay. Right? Yeah. And so all the reassurances of, oh, no, it's okay, it's okay, you just have to do this, why don't you do this, da 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 all of that just sounds like sound and fury signifying nothing. Mm-hmm. It just sounds like a word I can't say on the radio, but bogus. (laughs) Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I think this is important because I think that people my age Mm -hmm. looked at younger people and say, oh, they just need to, Mm -hmm. you know, get spanked or they just, Mm -hmm. I mean, really and truly. Well, some of us do, but that's another matter. (laughs) I don't mean like that. (laughs) But, you know, they just, all they needed was is somebody to show them how it used to be in the old days. In Mm -hmm. the old days, we were this way. Mm -hmm. And that's really um, important that... um, People need to listen. People need to listen. And that's, unfortunately, we have to go. Dang it. (laughs) But people need to listen. We need to listen to the younger people and find out what they're thinking about it so we can actually Mm -hmm. address it and be in this together as opposed to just saying, Mm -hmm. you guys are wrong because you're young and you're silly. Mm -hmm. We need to take a break. Okay. This is the Afternoon Buzz, and I really, really appreciate you being here with me today. This is fascinating. Carter J. Carter. 
a fellow resident of Ashfield, and mm -hmm. this is how I know him. And it makes me happy that you're here because you are very smart. I like that. Takes one to know one. <laughs> Thank you. And, and we'll be right back. <laughs> this is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster. Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2. Only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster. WHMP. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. So we are back with the Afternoon Buzz and the interesting thing with Nan Peretti. I am Nan Peretti and my guest today is Carter J. Carter. And we're talking about anxiety in young people, which is really fascinating. And during the break, Dan, you had a good question. Let's talk about that. Yes. So I read a, a, a citation in an online webpage for APA that said that the person today exhibits the same amount of anxiety. And this is the average normal person. The average talking normal, about. yes. Yeah. As the person who was in a mental health institution in the 1950s, the level of anxiety today on average of an average person is the same amount of anxiety somebody had in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what that, or have you heard that? Have you seen that? I, I haven't. It, you know, it, it tracks with my, my clinical experience. So I'm a, I'm a clinical social worker by training, right? Um, Clinical social work is real interdisciplinary. So some of what we study is psychology, neuroscience, things you might expect. But I also read a lot of things like sociology and anthropology to think about what people's kind of subjective experiences are. And one of the ideas from sociology that I think helps explain that is an idea called a risk society. Um, the the author of that concept, her name is escaping me, which is bad. Um, you can Google it if you would like to. Um, basically, the idea is that since the 1950s, there's been such a dissolution of social safety net protections, whether those offered by the state or those offered by employers, that an enormous amount of risk that was previously held collectively has been offloaded onto the individual to manage, right? That's a colossal mental load, right? It, it, it's, it's a lot to think about. It's a lot to bear emotionally. It's a lot of uncertainty to tolerate. And I will tell you, uh, human beings are, tolerating uncertainty is one of the things we're worst at putting this risk, this risk burden on the individual uh, rather than on society as a whole is having devastating psychological effects. Right? And that's what's happening. That's how it's going. It's on, on people instead of, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it describes what happened in the changes of society from the 1960s mm -hmm. on, right? As you begin to shift a lot of the risk burdens away from society onto individuals and you can blame the individual and and deteriorate the sort of social safety net you kind of yeah put the onus on them and then if people fail to kind of succeed in life not accumulate money not have a successful life and manage you kind of look at them and say well what decisions did you make that failed do you mind if i say something say something too? yeah um but just the the thing that underwrites everything I think about and everything I experience with my patients is shame. Mm. Uh, 
I tend to think that shame is the most toxic emotion um, as far as its potential to really poison us physically and emotionally from within. And, and I think that what you're pointing to is a kind of cultural and political evolution that uh, shunts risk off onto people who never had to bear it before and I would argue should not have. And then when they fail at managing that risk well, says to them, well, what's wrong with you, mm. right? Um there's a anthropologist named Richard Schwader who defines shame as the deeply felt and highly motivating fear of being judged defective, right? When we are judged defective, it's a profound threat to our belonging in a social group, right? Yeah. Our belonging in a social group historically is what kept us safe, right? Going back to our kind of, you know, you know, human evolution, you know, hominid and pre-hominid evolution, we weren't safe without the group, uh -huh. right? And we've now created a social system where we are routinely alienated from the group, where indeed a wish to belong is often seen as a humiliating or indulgent thing. Wow. Um, and so we're, we're conditioned to be highly individualistic, which is not what we were built for. And then when we in almost inevitably fail at this kind of, you know, individualistic hypermarathon, we are then humiliated, which at a deep biological level triggers a fear of death for us because to be rejected from the group is fatal for us. Yeah. So when you consider just how frequently people are humiliated, right? How they're humiliated by this kind of social configuration, how they're humiliated by feeling inadequate relative to other people on social media constantly, mm. right? We are not supposed to have our shame button pushed this hard this often. It's poisonous to us, right? And to my mind, this is, this is not an affliction that is unique to the young, but it's an affliction that I think falls particularly heavily on young people by virtue of like how especially sensitive they naturally are to membership in peer groups and mm -hmm. their own sense of social value being so tenuous. I'm curious if you can contrast what you just said with the conversation people are having today about tribal America, right? There's two tribes happening and, and connect that to social media where that seems to be like where the identities are being formed. I mean, in one sense, I'm hearing individual, but the other side of things, everybody seems to be talking about us going back to some tribal roots. How do you how do you understand that? You know, I think that's probably a better question for Ezra Klein than for me, perhaps. <laughs> but like, w w from where I sit, increasingly your sources of belonging are not obvious, mm. right? So. You know, we, you and I, and we live in a tiny town of Ashfield, Massachusetts, population 1,500 and something. Right. Uh, there's sort of a question of which church you belong to. There's two. Uh, <laughs> I think technically neither of us maybe belong to either of them, but we hang out at the coffee hour. Right, we do. Um, if you grew up in that kind of environment in an earlier era, how, the sources of your belonging were really clear, right? right? They were geographical, they were vocational, they were religious and educational. Um, and it, 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 you didn't have to think that hard to figure it out. Right. Right. Now, that's emphatically not true for most people, right? There are certainly folks who live in a situation where, you know, sources of belonging are handed to them, you know, fairly in a fairly obvious way. Mm -hmm. But for a lot of people, they're set the task of figuring it out from scratch, Yeah. right? And that becomes incredibly difficult. And so that puts a lot of pressure on a person to find a, a lunch table to sit at, figuratively right. speaking, mm -hmm. and then find a way to not lose your seat. And so it puts a lot of conformist pressure on people, right? Mm -hmm. Because if it was so hard to find this in the first place and you're at such great risk of, at least in your own mind, of losing your position if you put a foot wrong, you know, then, 
you're liable to work harder than is probably healthy to keep in the good graces of the people in what, you know, what Benedict Anderson would call your imagined community. Mm. Right. Yeah. And I think also, too, that it's also harder now because within the group, there's so much bullying going on within a group, not necessarily at church, but on social mm -hmm. media, that then all of a sudden you're cut out. The people you felt safe with know they're going after you, too. That must be, it's hard. I think it is a good time to be old. <laughs> um, um, so what do we do? What do we do? Where do we go from here? Or maybe I could ask a d different question, but along mm -hmm. those right lines. Uh, sorry, Nan, I'm go taking ahead. over here. Mm -hmm. uh, how do we reduce our collective anxiety? And I, we could say we or I, neither one of those. Um, so I'm an anarchist and <laughs> a psychoanalyst of a sort. And from that perspective, we're radically ethically responsible for each other, Right. The, the, the kind of two rules of thumb, if you're an anarchist, are you can't make me do anything, right? And tell me what I need to do for you. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> it's radically against coercive control and radically in favor of building community and taking care of each other, mm. right? So my stance would tend to be it, it's very edifying and reparative to find communities where you can be of service to other people and other people can be of service to you, mm. Right. And those kinds of communities also happen to be particularly resilient to uh, ugly social phenomena like fascism, mm. right? Because if I know you real well, regardless of what kind of person I might think you are, what category I might think you belong to, I know you, and it's going to be hard for me to turn you over to the secret police, right? Mm -hmm, right. Um, but I, I also think that th these kinds of um, – there's a political scientist named James C. Scott who's also an anarchist. It's a fun club to be a part of. You might consider joining. Yeah, um, yeah the very same. Um, he wrote a book called Seeing Like a State where essentially what he argues is that massive large-scale social pro programs that try to solve problems like climate change often are inadequate to the task because they get a little bit blinkered and confused. Um, it sounds like a conservative argument, but it's not. Um, and what he's arguing for is – decentralized kind of peer-to-peer -peer social efforts, kind of a, a, a very underestimated capacity to solve big problems well, and you can look at all kinds of historical examples for that. Um, so, so to my mind, there's a reason I moved to Ashfield, right? There's a reason that uh, I try to spend as much time as possible doing non-alienating things like teaching, uh, making friends with people like Nan. She's pretty good. Um, <laughs> you know, being of service to other people. The last time I was on this uh, radio station was talking about uh, efforts we were doing in Ashfield to resettle an Afghan refugee family. That worked. They're here. They're not dead. That's so great. Right? So to my mind, finding communities where you can be really known and where you can be of service and people can be of service to you and your belonging isn't contingent upon like, you know, your, uh, your narrow ability to tell a line, but is based on like how decent are you? Mm. Um, I don't have a better idea. That's easier to do in a rural area than cities, right? That's why I moved. Uh huh. There you I go. I just had to ask. Yeah. Right. No, you're right. Right. <laughs> and that's what my whole thing is these days about spreading love. And I am so serious about this spreading mm -hmm. love, being happy on the phone, being happy when you meet people, mm -hmm. being nice to people, and yeah. spreading love, starting with the 11 year old from a few weeks ago who was fighting mm -hmm. all the time to the 10 year old who's mm -hmm. anxious to your students. We got to spread some love. Here, here. Or else we're going to be in a lot of trouble. Yeah. We are, are in trouble spreading love, I think. And I know I sound like an old hippie because guess what? I am. Mm -hmm. That's what we got to do. <laughs> I'm with you. Yes. Thank you so much for coming oh, thank here you. today. You are great. I want you to come back like every week for a while. That'll be fine. Okay, cool. Yeah. We're, we're in now. We are talking to Carter J. Carter. 
who is a professor of all kinds of things, mm-hmm. but mostly people, yeah. right? Okay, good. We're mm-hmm. good. Thank you so much, Carter J. Thank Carter. you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.